good morning again, church. Today, not only are we worshiping here, but we're worshiping on two other campuses because it's our goal to reach what has traditionally been known as the 813. That's the original area code of Tampa Bay and beyond way back when. And it's our desire to reach as much of the people that we can in this region. And so we have three campuses right now, one church. So some folks are meeting at Lake Carroll, some at our Six Mile, and then a lot of folks, I'm sure with this weather, are joining us online. Would you welcome them to worship today? Take your copy of God's Word and find the little book of 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 3 in just a moment. But before that, I want you to take a minute and think about everybody in your little corner of the world. All right? In your mind's eye, start with the people in your house. A lot of us go to work, maybe the people you work with. If your neighborhood's like mine, maybe you see some of the same people walking their dog every day when you do get in your car to go to work. The businesses that you frequent. All the folks that are a part of your life. You got them? Now I want you to imagine that you're looking into their eyes. What do you see? See, here's the reality. Everybody around you either has hope or needs hope. Now, take out your mirror and look into your eyes. Because you're the same. You've either walked in today and you're confident, you're bold, and you're full of hope, or you're struggling. You don't know if you have the hope to make it another day. And here we are at Christmas. Christmas should be a time of hope, right? And yet for some, it's the darkest and most difficult time of the year. I can remember as an adult finally getting my dad to be honest with me. I could remember that he always seemed kind of heavy around Christmas. And so as an adult, I asked him, hey, What's up? It it seems like this is hard for you. And he said, yeah, as I was coming up, Christmas was a difficult time. For some, it's the most wonderful time of the year. For some, it's the most worrisome time of the year. Shattered dreams. Broken hearts. Addictive chains. The pain of grief. It all seems to be amplified during the holidays. And yet, it's into this darkness that like a laser, we find the light of Christ. What Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, would call the hope of Israel. Into the abyss of hopelessness came a living hope named Jesus. As long as I can remember... My favorite Christmas carol has been, Oh, Holy Night. As I think back to my childhood, I can remember three different ladies that regularly sang this in the church settings growing up. Just listen to a few of the words. Oh, Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Whatever you're facing today, I I want you to know that the Christ of Christmas makes the thrill of hope available to you. That whatever this day has brought A new and glorious day is dawning. And that's what I hope you walk out of here with, an awareness of the hope of Jesus that perhaps you've never had.
In fact, if there's a big idea today, it's this. The advent of Christ brings hope to our weary souls. And the promise of his return gives us confidence that everything is going to be okay. And I'm going to draw that out of three simple verses. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. See. This is if John's saying, listen. Or as we said where I grew up. Hey, y'all, watch this. (laughs) Some of your translations say, Behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us. There are different words to describe this in different translations. I don't think you can beat the New International Version. What I've just read, the love that He has lavished on us. And then there's this, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him, dear friends. Now, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know, that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope. This hope, say this hope, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. May God bless as he promises the reading aloud of his perfect word. I've shared this quite a bit, particularly in the last few years, but we're in the midst of a mental health crisis There were 34,000 suicides in our country this year. That's 94 a day. That's one every 15 minutes. And truthfully, for every successful attempt, there are more than 100 others that have tried to take their lives. It's the third leading cause of death among teenagers. 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds say that several times over the past two weeks they felt down, depressed, or hopeless. 59% of young adults say that they have trouble sleeping at night. Just this week I was talking with a new friend. The circumstances of life had gotten him down. The pain that he had encountered, the abuse had made him miserable as he became an adult. He was angry at God. He wanted answers that he didn't have. So eventually he attempted to take his life. He says he remembers waking up in the hospital angry, more angry than he had been at God. He couldn't even succeed at this. And yet through that journey, he eventually surrendered to truth that he had heard as a child. He surrendered his life to Christ. And not overnight, but over time, things began to change. And he's living his life now with a desire to illustrate the hope that Jesus offers. You see, he had a but God moment. He had his plans, but God had a different plan. How many of you have had but God moments in your life? You were starting down a path, but God had something else in mind. After 400 years of what seemed like silence, the Gospels record that Jesus birthed forth with the promised hope. He was the answer to the prayers and fulfillment, things you had heard, like what we quote in Jeremiah 29, 11. I promise you that your future has a what? Hope. Jesus was, he is the promised hope. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He was a fulfillment of prophecy for the children of God. He brought hope to a, really, a weary world, a thrill of hope. And it still takes place today. That's that big idea. The advent of Christ brings hope to our weary souls. And the promise of his return gives us confidence that everything will ultimately be okay. 
How do I get that out of this passage? Remember John. He's writing this as an old man. One of the original disciples, but now he's about 90. He's writing from Ephesus, a place you can still visit today. And he's writing to Christ's followers like us. He's writing to combat some problems that were real. Problems like doctrinal issues and behavioral issues. And he's writing to let Christ's followers know that their faith is something they can count on. They can have confidence in the faith that they profess in Jesus Christ. Why? Because this world is not our home. Don't get caught up in the circumstances of this world. Recognize that we're heading home. And so for five chapters, he reminds us what we get in our journey home. First, we're headed home, and we can head home with joy, thanks to Jesus. Next, in chapter 2, we're headed home, and we can head home with peace, thanks to Jesus. Now we're in chapter 3, and he's telling us that we can head home with hope, thanks to Jesus. So look again at those three verses. Let the Spirit of God breathe them into your life. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Doesn't always feel like it, does it? The reason... The world does not know us is because it did not know him. Dear friends, now we're the children of God. What we are has not yet been made known to us fully. We don't always feel it. We don't always understand it. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him and see him as he is. And all who have this hope, in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not a hopeless cause, and you should never have to result to a hopeless life. Let me tell you why. Number one, we have hope because of our salvation secured. By Jesus Christ. We have hope because our salvation is secured by Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Scripture teaches that your salvation is secure. How do you know this? Well, Scripture teaches us. Let me give you a few of the ways it teaches us. First, our salvation begins with the love of God. I'm about to share you the best news you'll ever hear. You ready? God loves you. God loves you. He could never love you more than he loves you today. And he will never love you less. And some of you need to hear that today. God loves you. In fact, some of you need to hear that in your own voice. So say this with me. Say, God loves me. God loves me. I know that because it says in John chapter 3 in verse 16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But why? He goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's what would inspire Charles Wesley to write these words so many years ago that we sing today to a different tune. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? You know what it's like to be lavished with love? Some of you, hopefully, will experience that in the next few days. Christmas is a time that sometimes we're able to do that to the people we love. We give them gifts. We lavish them with love. We try to have tangible demonstration of our love to them, hopefully, with no strings attached. Now, there's some of us that do that to a particular group of people more than others. And then there's some of you that want to do it even more to that same group of people. Whom I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about parents and the way we love our children. We love our children, so we want to lavish them with love. And some of you are grandparents, and you take it to a whole nother level. I mean, you want to lavish those that you've been blessed with with your love. What is he saying to us? You are children of God, and your heavenly Father lavishes you with love. I don't know what you've experienced on this side of heaven in, in your earthly family. You may not have had that kind of experience with a father. I understand many people don't. But if you're a follower of Christ, you have a heavenly father who loves you and he lavishes you with his love. But not everybody is a child of God. I needed to straighten that out because some of you have believed a lie. I heard it. There's a lot of folks that say we're all God's children. But there's no universal fatherhood of God. There's not a universal brotherhood of sister uh, of mankind. If that's your belief system, then what you've done is you've thrown out the scriptures. You're not taking it seriously. When God, while God is the creator of all that is, he's not the father of everyone. So how do you become a child of God? Same way I became a child of Don and Peggy. I was born into the family. That verse that I read from John 3, did you know that God's word says that if you were to come into the kingdom of God, you must be born into his family. You're born into the family of God. 1 John 2 29 tells us this. Look at what it says. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Here's my question to you today. Have you been born again? Have you been born into the family of God? I'm not asking you if if you're religious. I'm not asking you if there have been rituals that you've taken into your life. I'm not asking you if there are motions that you go through. I'm asking you if you have a moment in your life where you've understood that your sin separated you from God, where you recognize that that's the reason that Jesus came, where you've surrendered control of your life and you've placed your trust in him. Have you been born again? Our salvation begins with the love of the Father. But our salvation was purchased through the death of the Son. You know that your salvation is the very reason that Jesus came? I'm grateful that we get to celebrate the baby in a manger. But you realize that Jesus didn't come just to be a baby? My father-in-law used to sing that beautiful old Christmas song. Sweet little Jesus boy. He was a sweet baby. Like sweet Remy, I'm sure sweet Jesus was amazing to hold. Think about how Mary must have felt. But Jesus didn't stay a baby. He lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. Do you understand that? That Jesus was born to die? He became the son of man so that we could become the sons and daughters of God. How did he do that? Well, we quote this often in Romans 5 and verse 8, but listen to what it goes on to say. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since now we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God lavished his love on us by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus demonstrates his love for us by dying on the cross. Jesus came through the cradle to make his way to the cross. Your salvation is the very purpose for which we celebrate Christmas. John goes on to say that in a verse we did not read. In 1 John 3 and verse 5 it says, But you know that he appeared... So that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. Why did Jesus come? I just read it. Why did Jesus come? Pastor Zach, you're there in the back. Why did Jesus come? He came to take away our sin. 
The Son of Man came, he told Zacchaeus, to seek and to save that which is lost. That is why he came. He accomplished his mission. Jesus is the Savior of the world. You hear that? He's a Savior, not a loser. He's never lost anything that was his. Did you hear me? Jesus has never lost anything that was his. Do you understand that? You didn't save you. Nothing you did could earn or deserve your salvation. You didn't save you, so you can't lose your salvation. Jesus saved you, so your salvation is secure in him. Paul describes that in Ephesians 1. Listen to what he says. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of who are God's possession to the praise and his glory. What is that saying? When you begin a relationship with Christ, the mark of God is placed on your life. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Because when you begin a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells your life. And He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He doesn't treat your heart like a cheap hotel where He is there one day and gone the next. No, He comes in and He's there to stay. You're sealed. You're marked. It's like that bad tattoo some of you got when you were younger. Now that you're old, it's sagging. But it's still there. He sealed you. Until that day of redemption. We're going to talk about it more in just a couple of weeks, but I want you to know that that's the message John is giving throughout this book. In chapter 5, in verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. The whole reason we have the Scriptures is so that we can know Christ's follower, he doesn't desire for you to live in doubt. He desires for you to live with assurance, with confidence of the faith that you have in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Theologically, we call that the perseverance of the saints or the doctrine of eternal security. There was nothing you could do to earn or deserve your salvation and there's nothing you can do to lose it. But there's more. When you do face those doubts... When you feel overcome with the struggles of this world, you're reminded that our salvation is seen through the defeat of the enemy. Now, you know you have an enemy, right? In our family worship time, we're reading through chapters in the book of Luke, and recently we read through one of the, the, the chapters in Luke, and Jesus was telling us to love our enemies. Among other things in that chapter, I, I get to the end, and and I begin to ask the family, what did God teach you in that chapter? And I'm not going to name the member of my family, but somebody in there said, well, it taught me to love my enemies. And then they started naming an enemy. I'm not talking about that enemy that you're thinking about. But you do have an enemy. The Bible says he roams to and fro. He's seeking whom he may devour. And he's after you and your mama. He wants to distract you. He wants to defeat you. He ultimately wants to destroy you. The Bible says he's come to steal, kill, and to destroy. Who are you talking about, Pastor? Talking about the devil. Pastor, you really believe in the devil? Yes. I I've seen people go to two extremes. There are people that think the devil's behind every bush and everything that goes wrong in their life is a result of the devil. Your car broke down this week. It may not have been the devil. It may be because you never changed the oil, right? <laughs> but then there's the other extreme to think that the devil's just some pretend red fellow with a pitchfork and pointy horns. I mean, really? If you don't believe the devil's existence, what do you equate with all the problems in this world? I mean, that's the flaw with our modern-day media. On one hand, they want to say everybody's good and we are all should love one another. On the other hand, they, just, they deny the existence of evil in the world. And you're like, well, what's causing this? What's causing the disaster that our world is facing all around us? Well, there's an enemy. But he's been defeated. What do you need to know? Jesus defeated the enemy. Jesus dethroned the enemy. 
Jesus, according to Colossians 1, disarmed the enemy. But he didn't destroy the enemy. He's still out there. So you could say Jesus came on a search and destroy mission. And he accomplished what he came to do. And he began by destroying the devil's work. That's what John says in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So the devil can't take you if you're a follower of Christ. You know the story of Job? I've heard a bunch of people throughout my life saying, I feel like Job. Well, let me just tell you. Some of you have had a rough life. Nobody's had it as bad as Job. You remember what happened? The devil was roaming to and fro. He came to God the Father, and he said, Hey, your servant Job, can I have him? And what did God say? No. He said, No. You can't have him. You can do whatever you want to him, but you can't take his life. That's a picture of what's going on today. Some of you are going through things you don't understand. You can't trace God's hand. You don't see his plan. The devil's taunting you, but he can't take you. How did Job's story end, by the way? God blessed him more than he had ever been blessed. And he sings the song, I know my Redeemer lives. That's true of you as well. You got the love of the Father, the salvation of the Son, and the defeat of your enemies. In other words, you've got reason for hope. Your salvation is secured through Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing in this passage. We have hope because of the second coming of Jesus. Little Jessica was about four years old. Her mom was tucking her in on Christmas night. It had been a great day. I mean, she had gotten all the presents that she wanted. Her cousins were in town, so they had played with their presents, their gifts, all day long. They'd had so much fun. She had eaten all the kinds of food she loved and a ton of candy. Her mom was tucking her in, and she looked up and smiled and said, Mom, I sure hope Mary and Joseph have another baby next year. <laughs> I've got good news. We don't need another baby Jesus. But we do have the promise that the Jesus we have is coming again. So I just need to say that again because I don't think you heard me. Jesus is coming again. One of my favorite Christmas stories is told by Max Lucado. I think he's one of the best written communicators of this generation. In his book, God Came Near, he tells an incredible story about that village of Bethlehem on that very first Christmas. And he makes us, in our mind, just imagine what could have happened, what the innkeeper was thinking, what the shepherds were thinking, what that young mother Mary was thinking, or Joseph was thinking, as they held God. Majesty, he says, in the midst of the mundane he talks about the people in the village and everyone that passed by, most of which having no clue that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, had been born. He comes to the end of that chapter and Max Lucado says, except for the few that were in that stable, no one really understood what had just happened. They were all too busy and then he says not much has changed in 2,000 years so I've just told you and you applauded that Jesus is coming again but I want to ask you are you ready for his coming if you've wondered how you would have responded I did as a child I wondered what it would have been like to be there when Jesus came if you've wondered what it, how you would have responded then can't you also wonder what you would do when Jesus comes again because I want to say it once more church Jesus is coming again 
He says that in verse 28 of chapter 2. Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed of him before his, at his coming. And then in chapter 3, the verse we just read, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Jesus is coming again. As Paul would say, for now we see only as a reflection, as if in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. So what do we do with this mess that robs us of hope? Well, maybe the greatest chapter in Scripture is in the book of Romans in chapter 8. It's that passage where we get that verse that helps us deal with suffering moments, verse 28, and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? What happens before that? Paul is dealing with this journey through suffering pain, and he says in verse 18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. C.S. Lewis would go on to call this the weight of glory. What he's saying is the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, the burdens of life that weigh you down, that feel so heavy, they actually pale in comparison to the weight of glory to what God has promised for you. He says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But we hope for what we do not have. We wait for it patiently. Oh, church, I want you to know that Jesus is coming again, and that gives you reason for hope. Do you understand this truth? This world is not all there is. A better day is coming. And Jesus has promised to return and take us to be with him. That's what John 14 is all about. We hear this at funerals, but this wasn't given to us just so preachers would have something to say at funeral. Listen to the words of Jesus. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions, is the way I learned it. Many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go, what does it say, church? If I go, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you will be where I am. Do you think the earliest Christians believed this? You better believe they believed it. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. So John in his vision in the book of the Revelation would say, Look! He's coming in the clouds. And every eye, say every eye. every eye. Every eye will see him. And those who pierced him and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. If Jesus returned today, how would you respond? Last night in our family worship time, one of the stories that we read in Luke was about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with that expensive perfume from her alabaster jar. But do you know what it says Mary did before she anointed his feet with the perfume? She washed his feet, and this is where it gets interesting, with her tears. At the end, we talked about that as a family, like, why? Why is that? What was, what was Mary doing? And I, I just imagine in that moment that she's drawn to kneel at the feet of Jesus because of the awe and the wonder of who he is. And in that moment, yes, there's some recognition of, of the pain that is brought on because of our sinfulness, but in the midst of that recognition is also the reality that he loves us in spite of who we are. How would you respond if Jesus returned today? Would you run away with shame? Would you be afraid? Would you kneel in adoration and worship?
As you celebrate Christmas this year, I want to encourage you that the reality of the fact that Jesus came the first time should give you confidence that he meant what he said when he told us, I'm coming back. I drove my sweet mama to South Carolina this week to spend some time with my brother. As we were making the drive, we were just having conversation. And I said, Mom, what are you looking forward to? What are you most excited about, about your visit? And, and she said, well, I'm excited about seeing some of these great-grandchildren I've never seen. She's been here for three years. And I said, that's great. And she said, I I'm excited because I think John's going to preach the last Sunday. That's one of her grandchildren. John's going to preach the last Sunday I'm there. And it, and it may be. And here's what I thought Mom was going to say to finish the sentence. I thought she was going to say, it may be the last time I hear him before the Lord takes me home. Don't tell her I told you, but she's 87. She's, she's living a long life. But that wouldn't be true to my mom because she's never thought that way. As long as I've been alive, as a little boy, I can remember that my mom thought like John thought. My mom thought like the Apostle Paul thought. You know what both of them thought? Jesus said he's coming back so he could come at any time. I'm expecting him to come soon. If you read the New Testament, that's what Paul thought. That's what John thought. That's what the followers of Jesus thought. That's what Peggy thinks. So this is the way she finished her sentence. She said, I'm excited about hearing John preach because it may be the last time I hear him before Jesus comes back. Oh, church, I want to live with that expectation. I want to live with that confidence that Jesus is coming back. I want to live about that day we sing about. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin. He dwelt among men, my example is he. Word became flesh and the light shined among us. His glory revealed. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. But one day, say one day. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. We, hope, we have hope because of our salvation. We have hope because of the second coming. But church, we can't leave without me telling you this. We have hope because our sanctification is made possible through Jesus. Now, if you were with me when we spent about 30 weeks going through the book of Romans, you know that the Bible talks about the fact that as a Christian, you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. You were saved. That's when you were justified. When Jesus died on the cross, he finished the work. He paid for your sins. One day, you will be saved. That's when we'll be glorified. That's when we see Jesus face to face. Whether you die tonight and you see him face to face or whether he comes back this afternoon and takes us home. But in the midst of that, we're being saved. We're being sanctified. We're being made more and more like Jesus. That's the way the process works. That's why John would say, okay, all of you who have this hope, what hope? The fact that he's coming again. All of you who have this hope, purify yourself, for he is pure. What he's saying is, what we're going to be one day should change how we live today. Y'all all right? Let me say that again. What we're going to be one day, what are we going to be? When he appears, we shall see him as he is. And then what did it say? And we will be like him. You're not like him today. But what we're going to be one day should change how we live today. The fact that Jesus offers us salvation and promises his return should be a great motivation for living a pure life. He's told us, you've got everything you need. I'm gone for a bit, but I'm coming back. What else do you need to live for him? Think of how he could have done it. J.D. Greer talks about this motivation when he says, what if I went away on a trip and said to my kids, Daddy will be back soon, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'm not really your daddy at all. Maybe my real family lives somewhere else. You'll just have to wait and see if I come back. I might return from this trip with a gift for you, or I might not ever return. Now you just sit around and think about that while I'm gone and let it make you to be better children. You think that's work? 
You think that would be good motivation? Your heavenly father didn't do that. He lavished you with love. He defeated your enemy. He's told you he's coming back. And now he says, if you've got that hope, then purify yourself just as Jesus is pure. But don't try to get it backwards. The new birth has to precede the new behavior. And our world is eat up with people throughout history that have gotten this wrong. They're going through the motions. But there's not been a change on the inside. In fact, there are whole churches that focus on this. So I was driving home last night. I was talking with someone and they were, they were explaining how, how someone had discouraged them from going to another church because they said that church teaches a false gospel. And... And they said, but it doesn't, Paul. That church doesn't teach a false gospel. The, the problem is some of us can get so caught up in our legalism and the rituals and the things that we say you have to do as if it's something we do to be saved that we forget the motivation of our godly living. New birth precedes new behavior, but new behavior is an expectation. You're not judged on your greatest success or your worst failure. You're judged on the finished work of the cross. But when your life is changed by what Jesus has done, you repent of your sinfulness and every day of your life you're seeking to look more and more like Jesus. And I'm going to illustrate that. Some of you have always wondered if I really drank the coffee in this cup. I drink a lot of coffee. Um, I get up real early on Sundays, and so by the time you've seen me, I've had probably four or five cups. Don't send me a dirty email, I know. But this is not coffee. This is actually a tea called throat coat because I, I talk too much, and so I, I need some throat help. But, you know, if you really ask me what I really like to drink, I used to say Diet Dr. Pepper until they had a marketing technique, and they changed, and now they have Dr. Pepper Zero, Oh, that's good. I know it's not good for me. Please don't send me an email about that. <laughs> and, and then every time I see young Hunter Bruce, our, our student pastor, he it says, Pastor Paul, you need to drink some more water. And so, uh, <laughs> there you go, Hunter. That's for you. All right. How do I know this is water? I just had some. So it says it on the bottle. And on this bottle, you can see through but also just had some. How, how do I know this is Dr. Pepper Zero? I had some. It looks like it, but I had some. How do I know this is throat coat tea? It's kind of lukewarm. I wanted to spew it out of my mouth, but I just had some. You can't see it, but that's what I had. Here's the deal. If we wanted to do an experiment, I could dump all the water out, and I could put Dr. Pepper Zero in the water bottle. Would it make it water? No. Ultimately, what's on the inside is all that's going to come out. It doesn't matter what the label is on the outside. And the church today needs to hear that. Because there are a lot of professing followers of Christ that are walking around with a false label. You know, the reality is in our church, but it, I love our, my church. Our church is my favorite church. It, it's true of all churches. You know, in our church, we've got so many members that some of them, if you combine the FBI and the CIA and Homeland Security, they still couldn't find some of our members. <laughs> well, so you have to say, okay, you're you professing that on the outside, but at some point, kind of the rubber hits the road, right? At, at some point, what's on the inside comes out. That's all John's saying here. If you've got this hope, if you've experienced the lavished love of the Father that resulted in the gift, the sacrificial death of the Son, Jesus Christ, and you now have that salvation which is secure, you're looking forward to the promised return of Jesus, then just start living like it now. Live like it makes a difference. Live like a child of God. And that takes me back to what John told us 
we are. Sandra, according to scripture, you are a child of God. Camille, according to the Bible, you are a child of God. Do you guys understand that? If you've trusted Jesus Christ, recognizing that he died for your sins, repenting and yielding in faith to him, you are a child of God. So, so start looking like your daddy. That's all he's saying. I've lived long enough to learn it's true. I used to didn't think this. When I was growing up, I would see my parents do something, and I would say, bless God, I'll never do that if I'm a parent. Guess what I do? All those same things. I mean, I'm becoming, every year that passes, I'm becoming my dad. I mean, I can remember for the last 40 or 50 years of his life, my dad would be sitting down, and every time he'd stand up, he'd go, oi. And guess what? Every time I stand up, I make that same noise. But that's just the best example I'm giving you. The things he did that infuriated me, I find myself doing those things. And if you're young and unmarried, you better listen up. <laughs> you better look at mom and dad because that's just the way it works. We become like our parents. And that's God's design by his grace. Now, by his grace... We do leave some of those bad things behind, right? But as children of God, we're to look like Him. So remember how we started. Nobody's a helpless, hopeless cause. So nobody should live a hopeless life. The advent of Christ brings hope to our weary souls. And the promise of His return gives us confidence that when we trust Him, ultimately... Everything's going to be all right. It was 1977. George Lucas had just produced a science fiction movie. And he had determined that what everybody else thought is what he thought. It was going to be a flop. May 27th, 1977, A New Hope opened in theaters. By the way... Same day as Smokey and the Bandit. Anybody else remember that one? <laughs> Today, the Star Wars empire has earned close to $68 billion. In the New Hope movie, the most iconic part is when Princess Leia sends a message through R2-D2 to Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is what she says. Help me. Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. In the, hope, in the movie, we see that the only hope for freedom was the power of the Jedi, or what we would call the return of the Jedi. But what we've been talking about today is not a movie. And what I've been holding in my hands is no myth. This is the truth of God. The advent of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas brings hope to our weary souls. And the promise of his return gives us confidence that ultimately you can trust him. Everything's going to be okay. Would you bow your heads with me? Now we gather as the church, and as the church gathered, most of us profess to follow Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I really want you just to think about that idea of hope. Are you resting in the hope that Jesus has given you? He's given you hope. Are you resting in that? Where do you need to make adjustments? What needs to change to show that you're living with confident expectation in who he is and all that that means? 
maybe in just a moment as we continue in worship, you would come and just kneel at the front of this room or maybe you'd take the hand of one of our pastors and just say, and I've not been living as if I have hope in Jesus. I'd encourage you to do that today. But somebody's here and you've never begun that relationship with Christ. Remember how I said everybody has hope or needs hope? Guess what? You need hope. You need Jesus. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not just going to ask you to pray a prayer. Because you could pray 10,000 prayers and it make no difference in your life. I'm going to ask you to surrender to Jesus. When I was talking to my friend that had attempted to take his life. He said, Pastor Paul, I had heard the truth. I grew up in and out of church. But I'd never surrendered to Jesus. So if you've never done that, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Just where you are, you might just cry out to God and say, God, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I need hope. I believe you died for me. Just tell him you believe he died for you and you know he's alive today. Maybe you just tell him you're turning from your sins and you're turning to follow him. You can pray that right where you're seated, but you can also come and just talk to one of our pastors that are going to be standing here. If you're a lady, we'd also love to team you up with one of our ladies who's a prayer warrior that could pray with you and encourage you in your faith. But don't miss this moment. Respond to the living hope of God. You won't regret that you've done that. So, Father, I thank you today for the chance just to pause to commit this time to you and to respond to what you've taught us, what you've shown us, what you've done. So in this moment, Lord Jesus, give us courage to match our conviction. Lord, for that person that needs hope, Lord, may they commit in this moment to you. For that person that needs to be saved, may this be the moment of their salvation. And to all of us who are your worshipers, who are your followers, Jesus, May we celebrate that reality, that living hope that you've made available. May we do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's worship. Let's respond to Jesus.